Greetings, historical wargame fans. I'm Josh, and you're tuning into part two of our multi-part series on how to design homebrew wargaming rules. If you missed part one, I highly recommend you go back and check that out first. But if you want the Cliff Notes summary, in the first episode, Tom and Greg talked about why none of the current AWI rule systems our club plays are suitable for our upcoming Battle of Brandywine. This ultimately led them to pick a 30-year-old three-page game written in 1987. That game is called Loose Files and American Scramble and can still be found for free online today. But in part one, you heard Tom and Greg discuss some updates and revisions they want to consider. As a part one of their ongoing research, they agreed to talk to other experts in the American Revolutionary War period. And right now, in part two of our series, you're about to hear one of those interviews. In this episode, Greg calls up Jim Perkey, the owner of Fife and Drum Miniatures and a longtime AWI history buff. It's a chat full of ideas and insights about the key elements of warfare a game set in this era should capture. So sit back, relax, and enjoy part two of How to Write Homebrew Wargaming Rules. My name is Jim Perkey. I'm the proprietor of Minden Miniatures and Fife and Drum miniatures. Uh, we make uh, 156 scale toy soldiers for wargaming the American Revolution and the Seven Years War. Uh, I've been wargaming since about 1986, I think, and uh, been doing it ever since. Thanks for taking the time for a chat. I appreciate it. Oh, no, my pleasure. Tell me just a little bit more, you know, specifically, what is it about the American War of Independence that has been interesting to you as both a war gamer and a military history buff. What draws you to that period? Well, for starters, there's cocked hats, tricorn hats. That's always seems to grab me. Um, I think one of the things I like is it's uh, the soldiers were literate, so you do have uh, letters from the sol just not just the uh, commanders, but also from the uh, the lower ranks and. Uh, they're not easy to find, but they're out there. And that brings a personal touch to it. Uh, I think some of the other things I like about it, it's, uh, it's, it's a small war. You, in terms of wargaming, you don't have to collect thousands of figures, and you can, but not necessary. Uh, very colorful looking, uh, you know, red coats, blue coats, uh, and all kinds of other uniform colors with the, the Continentals. and. Um, different theaters of war that are completely different. Uh, Southern theater, mid-Atlantic and the uh, upper New York area. So you can have three different, completely different uh, war game armies if you want to and uh, have a lot of fun with either one because they're all completely different. So when Tom and I were discussing what rules we could consider using for Brandywine, you know, there were, there's obviously a lot available for the period and we talked about a number of them. And I would be curious to know, just from your experience, since you do game this a lot, what are what are some favorites of yours at, at any scale? I know Brandywine is obviously a big battle scale, but just, you know, take us through a couple of your preferred rule sets. Sure. If you were trying to do the whole battlefield, that would probably entail a different set of rules that would have an emphasis on faster movement, faster resolution of things. And you're looking at a maybe a 20,000 foot view 
whereas if you want to use 28 millimeter figures, you're probably looking at a lower level like uh, you know, a division or brigade in, uh, in this scale. Um, and then you could go down to the skirmish level and just have individual figures and there's a number of little actions prior to the battle like Cooch's Bridge and uh, Maxwell's light infantry holding up the uh, Neithausen's column for four hours. <laughs> I did a little reading up on that to refresh my memory and I was just amazed at uh, how well the American light infantry did. Um, and actually it turned out Washington had a very low opinion of uh, Colonel Maxwell. <laughs> he was wrong. He exceeded expectations. Yeah, big time. Um, well, let's see, for rules, I would probably use my own rules. Uh, they're called fife and drum rules, but no coincidence. Uh, it's a system very easy to, uh, to learn. They were developed with the idea that they could be played at a convention and that the players could pick up the mechanics of the rules within a couple terms. Uh, accordingly, it's printed on one side of a sheet of an eight and a half by 11 piece of paper. I like that. I do too. And I, I find usually by the, yeah, the second term, the players are uh, running the game themselves. I just have to sit back and uh, adjudicate any uh, disputes or uh, um, clarifications of rules and uh, uh, it goes very well. So I, that's probably what I use for most of my games. And it's uh, the skeleton of the rules is such that I can adapt it very easily to uh, almost any 18th century conflict. Uh, we've also done Napoleonics and Civil War with the same and scale. What kind of scale is that game? What is, uh, what is a player normally running in that? Uh, well, for American Revolution, I use a one to 10 ratio. So you know, one, one figure equals 10 men. Uh, it's, you could still have a pretty good sized uh, looking unit of 20 to 30 figures. And, and to me, I kind of like the look and heft of larger units. So uh, rather than having eight or 12 figures, which doesn't appeal to me, I would have, as I say, 20 to 30 or more um, figures in a unit. I, I think just the look of that many figures and the flags and the color uniforms really is attractive and uh, attracts a lot of attention if you're running it at a convention. I played a little bit of Age of Reason, which is a nice, nice set of rules. Uh, they have, uh, I think they have some variants for the American Revolution. I did try the uh, Loose Files in American Scramble. I think British Grenadier takes that. Yes, yes. The, the Loose Files is, um, we were actually, we've been looking at that one fairly closely because that's like a three-page set of rules written back in uh, 1987 in the first ever issue of uh, War Games Illustrated. Right, Andy Callan. It's exactly. A, who, who is still around and writing rules, I hear. And that, that set of rules seems to uh, pop up uh, frequently in the, some of the forums that I visit for this period. And, uh, you know, it's got, had a lot of staying power, even though it's never been published. <laughs> yeah, just, uh, yeah, we found them for free online. You just Googled right. it and that old uh, black and white article from the 80s came up, just kind of right. funny. In terms of free rules, I, I give my rules away for free on my uh, website for Fife and Drum. So if you want to go there, just uh, click on the menu for articles and 
the rules will be there and download them and have at them. Tom, uh, Tom actually sent me a copy of them a week ago. So we, we started reading and, uh, and picking through because, I mean, well, we've, we've had your miniatures for a long time. Twenty-eight. I mean, they're just—they're absolutely beautiful. Of course, for the Battle of Brandywine that we're doing for the Trust, we've got to jump down to a different scale because <laughs> sure, yeah. through the whole Battle of Brandywine in twenty-eight millimeter, we would need a lot more figures. Oh, you're a glutton for punishment. I, I probably wouldn't try to do the whole battle. Um, although we have a group where once a year we do a huge battle. One of our members has the large basement that can fit uh, three six by 30 foot tables. Whoa. So they're all running parallel to each other. Sure. And just it's sort of modeled after the War Game Holiday Center. So you yes. ignore the, the gap between the tables and you just hop from table to table. So you can get a very large uh, a battle on that type of a table even with 28 millimeter figures. So that might be something I might want to tackle. We we do it once a year. We, you know, the uh, pandemic uh, stopped us from doing a game last year, but uh, yeah, it's something we like to do. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like you are the glutton for punishment there. I like the big battalions. Yeah, yeah. Um, separating ourselves from just specific rule sets and looking more generally at the period, um, what are some of the most important hallmarks? of this era of warfare that you think really should be reflected in a rule set, particularly when keeping in mind a short rule set. You know, there's only so much an author, you know, you yourself have written a one page set of rules. There's only so much you can do in one or two pages. So if you're limiting yourself to just a sheet of paper, what are you trying to capture? What's the flavor that you need to reflect? Most important stuff. Well, I think the main differences between the armies are, and it varies from which year of the war you're looking at, but for Brandywine, the American army is still having uh, teething pains. They had some bad experiences at, in New York, uh, Long Island. So I think probably two things to look at are troop morale and quality of the, uh, the generals. So both can make a, a huge difference in the battle. Certainly the British troops across the line are very good. Uh, this is uh, the cream of Howe's army that came over from uh, Britain and was very successful uh, in, in the New York campaign. Americans, it's, have a, it's a spotty uh, record. You'll have some very good units. Uh, the Maryland regiments were considered very good. Uh, some that are not so great and that's more a function of the fact that uh, early in the war enlistments were only for a year and so the soldiers went home and so you had all these experienced soldiers from the 1776 period that were gone and so you have a smaller cadre of those that stayed behind and they've recruited more uh, soldiers to fill out the regiments and these new soldiers just aren't trained uh, you know for the type of tactics that are needed for the type of battle the Brandywine was. Washington recognized early that uh, his army couldn't stand up face to face and have a traditional European firefight and pull off a win. So uh, tell me a little bit about the role of artillery 
it seems to me in my cursory reading, it's it's very lightweight guns. They're not deployed in any kind of mass. They seem to be just kind of scattered out amongst the regiments used here or there. What kind of ro role do they play in these battles? And, and how do you feel like that should be reflected in a grand tactical set of rules? Well, for starters, the uh, it's probably a function of the roads in America were awful. Uh, you had a few metal roads where you could move things about fairly easily, but those tend to be in the cities. Uh, and also a lack of horses to pull these things along. So because of that, the cannons for both sides were generally lighter three-pounders. Uh, the British six-pounder was used in both sides. Uh, some French guns were used by the uh, Continental Army. And in fact, they took French four-pounders and uh, bored out the hole and used them as six-pounders. But uh, I think, as you said, the uh, they weren't set up in large mass batteries, uh, again, because of the mobility issue. So my sense is that artillery doesn't play the role that it might have in European wars. Now, I, I could be wrong, but just from my reading of it, I don't see that artillery plays a huge role, and neither does cavalry. So it's a, largely a, an infantry fight. Is, is your impression that artillery in this war is being used for like long range duels with each other or are they close infantry support weapons with canister? I mean, what, what actually are they really doing? Well, I think the British, since they were professional artillerymen, they were very good, were probably trained to not get into counter battery fire. I think that's more, certainly by the American Civil War, that was more prevalent. But in, in this period, I don't think they're doing, it was discouraged. Probably the Continental Artillery, which uh, wasn't, wasn't bad. They probably followed uh, British practices because after all the, you know, the Americans were their British subjects uh, a while ago and very much influenced uh, by all things from Britain. Yeah, again, I just don't, I don't have a sense that artillery plays a huge role in, in most battles. I know that from my reading, as you said, it is definitely an infantryman's war. And something else that I've really kind of struggled to understand when I'm reading accounts of this are, you know, you, you mentioned earlier, there's a lot of letters. There are a lot of firsthand accounts and from many of these battles, Brandywine included. Mm -hmm. Guys on both sides are talking about, you know, ferocious firefights. You know, we were half a day, we were trading shots with the enemy. But then you look at the casualty reports and it's like a hundred guys died at this battle. You get to later wars, you get to the Napoleonic Wars, you get to the American Civil War, and the casualties are tremendous. And maybe the Napoleonic Wars are a better example because they have the smooth war weapons, same smooth war, inaccurate weapons. Why are the casualties so light? And on the ground, what was actually happening in these like hour plus long firefights where nobody's getting killed? Well, I think you have to first start with the weapon of destruction, the smooth bore musket. While it had an effective range, maybe out to 200 yards if you were lucky, really what they tried to do is get into about 50 yards of each other uh, before they started firing away. There was some school of thought that you wanted to let the other side fire first so that you could then move even closer after they fired and, and finish them off. So the closer you were, the more firepower you could uh, put on your opposing unit and 
the more casualties you were likely to inflict. Uh, muskets were, you, know, you get a kick and so the uh, musket would sort of raise slightly in the air, I guess they call it windage. And uh, so soldiers tended to shoot high, aim high. So the officers would tell them aim low so that when the kick happened from the musket, uh, if they were lucky, it hit somebody right in the chest. <laughs> so, so I think that's a, one of the reasons why the casualties are low. Of course, you get a lot of wounded men too. And, and as we discussed earlier, the role of artillery with fewer cannons, there are not as many uh, canister rounds going off in the face of uh, the soldiers. So I, I think that, and then the third point being the armies are much smaller. So you're not looking at uh, something from the Seven Years' War where you maybe had 40 to 60,000 soldiers per side. So you put all those things together and is your observation is there, the casualties seem to be lower. Something else that I've been trying to find accounts of that I've found very, very few of are actual instances of what we would call like close combat, melee. They seem to be exceptionally rare. I mean, there's famously, it does happen at Bunker Hill. Guys actually are clubbing each other literally face to face. But other than that, I just haven't found that many of them. So, I mean, is, is that a fair impression? Are there accounts maybe that I'm missing? Is, is, does close combat happen that often? Or is it just like really, really close range volleys until somebody runs away? Yeah, I would say that uh, warfare in this period was a, uh, was morale. So, They'd be shooting at each other at close range and generally one side would decide that it wasn't going well for them and they'd retire or rout, run away. Um, maybe earlier in the war, the, the perception was the British would fire and then run after them with uh, bayonets leveled. But the, I don't think that happened as many times as we think because you didn't want your regiment to uh, lose its discipline and just start running here and there like they do in Hollywood. It's, you know, in Hollywood, the British march up, shoot, and then they all go running off and uh, stabbing Americans and, you know, those terrible lobster backs. But that didn't really happen, happen very often. I think where you do see it is if you're assaulting a position. So if there's a attack on an earthwork or a fort that um, the, soldiers that are attacking are more likely to uh, get into close combat situation. What, um, what do you know about the role of skirmishers in this period? I mean, I'm very familiar with the American Civil War is one of my primary periods of study and skirmishing is a big deal. I mean, heavy, heavy lines of skirmishers are out in front of every brigade at all times. It's, uh, it's very prevalent. Is, is that the same tactical doctrine at this time? Or are both of these armies throwing out really heavy skirmish lines? My perception is no. I mean, certainly don't have the, as I say, clouds of skirmishers that you would see in Napoleonic combat. Yeah, they might send some people forward, but I think it's light infantry were using a different, well, light infantry tactics were just starting to develop for uh, trained soldiers. Now, when you get out into the, the backwoods and it's an entirely situation, different situation because uh, the men are acting more as individuals. Uh, you, you think of something like uh, the Battle of Oriskany uh, where they're 
ambushed by uh, the Indians and not doing very well. And then uh, they start pairing up so one person can fire while the other is loading and they find that that works fairly well. Uh, but again, my, my perception is you don't have uh, very many skirmishers ahead of the uh, regiments that are marching in line. So I, I, I don't find too many examples of it, maybe on the periphery of the battlefield. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to kind of go through some of this stuff. And I do want to wrap up with one question that has always interested me specifically about the Battle of Brandywine. Um, I'd love to hear your take, because I know you're familiar with this battle, on, um, on the three top British commanders who were there. Uh, Howe, Cornwallis, and Niepausen. What are your What are your Cliff Note thoughts on their their performance, not just at this battle, but sort of overall? I mean, what do you think of Howe as a as a commander? Well, I may be in a minority, but I I really like Howe. Uh, you look at his battles, and he was very professional. He used the tactic of pinning the opponent and taking the rest of his force and hitting them on the flank, and. Uh, he did it time and time again, and Washington couldn't seem to figure out that that's what the British were going to do to him. And uh, so I, I like how I, I think he, very professional, knew what he was doing. He didn't want to get involved in another Bunker Hill. He was there at Bunker Hill, and I think that probably affected his judgment as to how he wanted to fight battles. Uh, Cornwallis is a uh, Subordinate, I think, was very good. Not quite so later as an independent commander down in the south. But uh, yeah, I think he's very well thought of and the uh, soldiers liked him. And someone once said he, he has the war gamer's dream command because of Brandywine. He has the guards, he has the grenadiers, he has the lights, he's got the Hessian Jaegers. And you know, who wouldn't want to have that under command? So my feeling is Cornwallis is a uh, subordinate is is in the right role. Your third general, you're probably thinking of uh, Baron von Niefhausen, who commanded the British right wing and uh, the Hessian contingent. His command was about equally Hessians and, and British, and his role was to make a demonstration in front of the uh, American line at Chad's Ford that was lining the uh, Brandywine when it was evident that uh, something was going on on the other side of the, the river, uh, he finally launched an assault and uh, drove the Americans away with relative ease. Um, again, very professional general. Um, I, I think he was, I have a high opinion of him too. So, uh, so again, I mean, it's a big difference between the Americans and the British. You had very good British and allied officers. The Americans were spotty, some were good, some were drunks, <laughs> uh, some were average. I think on, on the whole, most of them were average. I think uh, Nathaniel Green was well thought of. If there was a weak link on the American side, at, at a higher level, sort of, you know, brigade to division level, uh, who, who comes to mind as a weak link? Well, you had General Sullivan. He didn't perform very well in the battle. He, he might have been uh, over his head because he was given command of the whole right wing of Washington's army. Yeah, it didn't work out. <laughs> no, I, uh, and I think he put a lot of blame on Washington because he really was detached from what was going on. And uh, 
I think maybe one good way to play a large battle of Brandywine might be to have uh, scouts coming in with information to the player that's Washington and you, know, you could give them different uh, bits of information. Some of it could be true, some of it could be false. You could even change the battle somewhat by giving Washington uh, totally different information than, than what he had. That might be an interesting way of doing it. Yeah, Washington's still learning his trade too. So I, I don't give him very high marks. Uh, for this. <laughs> Not his finest hour. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's one incident where uh, Sullivan is sending messengers back to Washington telling them the British are coming. And uh, first they, they send, I think it was a militia officer, goes back to Washington and for some reason, Washington puts a lot of faith in the militia officer giving him information. And then Sullivan sends one of his own aide-de-camps. And when this fellow arrives, who's a continental colonel or whatever, Washington doesn't choose to believe him. And as it turns out, the Sullivan's messenger had the right information that they were indeed uh, crossing the Brandywine further up uh, the river. And, the militia officer had been across the creek earlier in the day where the British just hadn't arrived yet. So the intelligence and gathering information, I, I think are, of course they're key to any battle, but they played a huge role in Brandywine. Yeah, I mean, partly I think that must just be because the battlefield was so big yes. and it covers a huge, huge area, which is a challenge for wargaming the entire battle because either you're forced to bathtub it into a smaller space, which takes away from the, you know, inherent intent of what was going on there, or are you trying to represent, you know, this huge area across multiple tables? It's, it is a challenging one to figure out how to represent the whole thing. Kind, kind of the funny thing is that, uh, I think there was about five miles distance from Chad's Ford to, I think it was Jeffrey's Ford, where mm -hmm. the British eventually crossed. Washington, placed uh, regiments at all the fords except the last one. <laughs> so he, he went out about four miles and just didn't get that last mile. One too short. One too short. Uh, and when you really look at the map, you, you really can't blame them because, I mean, that was just way out there. And I don't think anyone would have the presence of mind to think, oh, the British are really going to show up, uh, you know, five, six miles away from here and fall in our rear. Just his luck. Just bad luck that day. <laughs> well, thank you again for taking the time tonight. Um, before we wrap up, uh, I would love to let people know where they can find out more about you, about uh, Fife and Drum Miniatures. Uh, where where should they go to learn more about what you do? Well, they can they can find me two places. I have my own blog, Duralta Fritz Journal, which is on Blogspot, and then I have a. Uh, my own forum called the Fife and Drum Minis. Uh, the address is Fife and Drum Minis, all one word, dot proboards.com. And we have a forum where we discuss 18th century history, wargaming, uniform information, everything. So you'll find me at those two places most of the time. Wonderful. Well, hopefully we can send some folks there. And uh, yeah, thanks again for. Uh, providing a little bit of education and context and background information for the period because we're uh, we're coming up on our big game with the American Battlefield Trust and we're 
we're excited to put something together for it. Well, it's my pleasure. It's uh, always fun to interact with the Little Wars TV crew, and uh, it'll be fun seeing uh, how you put this all together. <laughs> I have no idea how it's going to come together, but we'll find out soon. I'm sure it will be good. Looking forward to it.